The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. <laughs> Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. I was working on this book during the election. And there's one that there was one thing I just kept coming back to and I kept saying to my wife, This is just insane. You know, heading into the nineteen eighty five season, which would end up being the last season, Donald Trump and the New Jersey General signed Doug Flutie, the Heisman Trophy winner out of Boston College. There are a couple of things to that. Number one, they didn't need him, but Trump liked the hype and the headlines of getting Flutie. Um, he signed him to the biggest contract in pro football history at the time. I think it was six years, eight point three million which at the time was a huge amount of money. And he actually wrote a letter to the commissioner of the league, Harry Usher, uh, that I got a copy of. And it said, um, my signing Doug Flutie has done wonders to this league. No one can argue against the impact it's had on attendance and blah, 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 blah. And I expect all the other owners to contribute to paying his salary. And this is right around the same time he was saying Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Wow. And I kept thinking, holy crap. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to the author of the book Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, Jeff Perlman. I read this book. I loved it. I'm a USFL freak. If you don't know what it is, you're going to really like this interview in a big way. Also, I've got some choice words about the Trump administration's efforts to cut the Special Olympics and I have a first this week in the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards. I have the same person winning both. But first, let's talk to New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Perlman. I just got to tell you off the bat, I absolutely love the book. Thank you for writing it. Oh, Oh, thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. I really did love it. And, you know, you're you're one of those people who, because of the success you've had, uh, you really almost certainly could have written about anything as long as you had a half-decent proposal under your arm. Why, why the USFL? Uh, mainly because I'm a sucker for nostalgia, and I grew up loving the USFL. Me too. And, uh, did you really? Did I grew up so obsessed with the USFL. I, and honestly, before reading your book, I didn't know that anybody else was out there who felt about it the way I did. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I'm just a... Uh... I think the number one reason I even do these books is sort of the joy of nostalgia and like the opportunity to go back in time and dig. And, you know, I was just, I was a 10 year old kid when the US of Elks came along and um, I just fell in love from the beginning, the colors, the helmets, the names, you know? So I, yeah, it was just a chance to do something. I'd always wanted to write. Now, 
And, you know, in retrospect, it's so funny. Like, I was watching it through a kid's eyes, of course. And after reading your book, I went on YouTube, tried to watch uh, some clips wherever I could. How good do you think the product was relative to the NFL? Because to my young eyes, it was great. Yeah, it's like one of those things where if you go back in time, like, so when you're little, everything seems amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And and I do think colors and team names and big names and stuff like that really adds to it. It definitely wasn't the NFL. There's a huge disparity among, uh, I mean, some of the teams are really good. The Philadelphia Stars are really good. The Chicago Blitz, the first year, were really good. And then you had teams that would have probably lost a Canadian football league game. So the big thing was you had a, you had a wide, you know, the quarterbacking that first season was awful, like really bad. I mean, the New Jersey Generals had Bobby Scott as a quarterback. The guy, even Archie Manning's backup in New Orleans, and he uh, he tripped over a cable and ruined his knee and was basically done in the NFL. But the USFL would take anybody. So, um, you know, it started off kind of bad in the quarterbacking. But over time, uh, some of those teams really became NFL caliber teams. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And you mentioned the team names. I mean, the Pittsburgh Maulers, the LA Express, the Birmingham yeah. Stallions. Uh, did, did you have a favorite growing up? I mean, I, it's kind of ironic. I actually was a, I was a big New Jersey Generals fan as a kid because I grew up in New York. And um, I didn't know anything about Trump or anything. You know, I sort of wasn't what he is now. And um, but I would say team, just name-wise, the two that really did it for me, the Houston Gamblers I loved and the, uh, and the San Antonio Gunslingers. Oh, yeah. The funny thing, the, gambler, the Gamblers is funny because um, the, uh, you know, the, the network, ABC, was, was televising games. And um, they wrote a letter saying you can't have a team named the Gamblers. Like, you just can't do that when the, when the Houston came along. And uh, Jerry Arkovitz was the owner of the team. And he took the letter and he put it in the newspaper. And he said, do you guys think we're going to have a poll right now? Do you guys think we should change our name for TV? And, uh, or, you know, overwhelmingly, the answer was no. It was a great marketing ploy. And they kept their name and, you know, they ended up being on TV a lot because they had Jim Kelly and the run and shoot offense. Damn. What's your favorite USFL story, either on or off the field, the one that your mind goes to when you think about what a crazy, fun league this was? I mean, the two main ones, two real quick, are um, number one, the San Antonio Gunslingers had to put a player on the disabled list because he slammed his penis in the trunk. Yes. In a trunk. Um, well, that's pretty amazing. Well, I don't know. We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the Howard Stern line. I'm six foot five and hung like a pimple. Like, I, I would not know. I would not know what it is to slam my penis in a trunk. And then, um, I mean, the other one that was my, my favorite experience in the book is there was this guy, Greg Fields, his nickname was Big Paper. And um, he was a defensive lineman out of Grambling. And when he was in the NFL with the Atlanta Falcons, he was cut in training camp and refused to leave. And the team had to get an armed security guard to escort him, uh, quote-unquote, escort him out of the uh, premises. So he goes to the USFL. And in 1984, he's cut by the LA Express and the coach, John Adel. And when Adel calls him into the office uh, to tell him he's cut, Fields punches him in the face and then um, starts calling him death threats. You know, to the team, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you, F you, F you. And um, we end up hiring Liberace's bodyguard, I mean, Nelson Mercado, to come in and sort of track Greg Fields. And um, it's this amazing saga. And the guy, you know, he's crazy. And he has guns with him, and he's just stalking the team. But then the San Antonio Gunslingers need defensive line help. So even though they know all this, 
they actually sign him. And um, I mean, one of the coolest moments for me of this whole project, it doesn't make me sound like a very good parent, is my, um, I need, really need to find him. I just had two addresses. And they were both in San Francisco. So my son and I took a drive to San Francisco. I think my son was old, 10 at the time. And we, um, we walked all over San Francisco trying to find Greg Fields, who just had these addresses. And uh, I ended up, um, his, I ended up finding his sister. She lived in uh, in some public housing in San Francisco, and I knocked on her door, and she said, um, she said, "Well, I'm his, I'm his sister. I don't know if he'll, he'll call you back, but here's his phone number, or uh, uh, give me your number, and I'll give it to him." And the next day, me, my son, and Greg Fields were in uh, Sacramento in a shopping mall eating uh, cold stone creamery with Greg Fields. It's one of the great moments of my reporting career. My God, you're right. That doesn't make you sound like the best parent. Um, no, but it was so great. <laughs> it sounds actually pretty awesome. You know, just yeah. a quick aside, what, it says so much about the 1980s that uh, that network executives were scared of the word gamblers but didn't care about the word gunslingers. That's amazing. It's yeah, I mean, there's so much. I mean, the, uh, the cheerleaders were dressed like hookers. They really were. It was the most hooker-looking cheerleader outfits ever. There was so much about that league that was kind of dirty and grimy, and some of the giveaways were really borderline. But that, but the the word gamblers was the offensive yeah. thing in the rest of the yeah, It's funny. It's like no, no, no. Let's not go too far <laughs> yeah. here. Come on, yeah. this is a family product. <laughs> exactly. Um, so you mentioned the name. Oh no! Before I go there, because that's like it's so funny, but like. Like in reading the book, it's like I, I was I came close to skimming the Donald Trump parts because all I wanted, I I, partly because I'm so sick of him, and partly because I just love the USFL stuff so much, independent of the the orange smear in the White House. Um, can you please just tell the Rick James story? Oh, that's awesome. There was a uh, nobody asked that one. There was a um, there are a lot of stories that get lost when uh, when you're promoting a book because this book had so many kind of weird moments to it. Um, the uh, it's so good. The, there was a defensive back in a playing for the Washington uh, Federals named Doug Green, and when he was in the NFL, he played for um, he played briefly for the Cardinals, and somehow he ended up with Buffalo, with the Bills, and um, he was friends with uh, he was friends with Leon Spinks, and Leon Spinks is like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I have a friend in Buffalo who'll take care of you, and one day this guy Doug Green is at uh, he's at practice in this this limo pulls up and you know, someone on the street guard opens the door and it's Rick James. And he walks over to this guy, Doug Green. And he's like, Hey, you're friends with Leon. And he's like, uh, yeah, you're Rick James. He's like, yeah, I'm going to take care of you, man. And he ends up, um, he ends up living with Rick James while playing for the Buffalo Bills. And like, you know, Rick James is throwing all these insane parties with all these drugs and all these women. And he ends up hiring Doug Green to be his bodyguard at different events. And, um, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just a million. I mean, it's a million crazy, insane thing. It was, the 80s were the best. It made no sense, but they were the best. It was the best era of all time. It's just more weird, weird access. It made absolutely no sense. I mean, no. And just like the, this incredible period where uh, there was no social media, there was like the, the eyes, but your post sexual revolution, pre Magic Johnson HIV announcement. And it, it created, I think, a certain vibe, <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah, no, I agree. Also, the uh, there's one thing that there's one thing I, I always like. You asked me my favorite story, and there's something that never it couldn't happen today because of social media. But the um, 
and a million different communication reasons. But the uh, the Boston Breakers in 1983, their big signing was Dave Remington, the Outland yes. Trophy winner from Nebraska, and they um, they reach agreement with him on the phone, <laughs> and they fly him in to officially sign a contract. And, uh, you know, they send a whole sort of army of people to Logan to pick him up at the airport. And he's not there. He's not on the plane. And it turns out they were negotiating with someone who was pretending to be Dave Remington, just messing with him. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I, and they have to hold a press conference announcing that they're not signing Dave Remington. It's like the greatest stuff that couldn't happen out. It's be impossible. That's amazing. And uh, speaking of actual players in the USFL, how – I mean, I've always wondered this because we all know running backs age very, very quickly, and this person spent their prime years in the USFL dominating. How good do you think Herschel Walker was, and how good would he have been if he'd played in the like in the NFL straight? I don't think he was great. I mean, well, you know, it's, I'll tell you something interesting. I wrote a book about the uh, the '90s Cowboys a bunch of years ago, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and obviously Herschel Walker became a cowboy and they traded into Minnesota and got all those picks. The um I remember people were saying like Herschel Walker was a very strange athletic specimen because he was really fast. He was in I think he ran a four three and he was super fast and he was kind of Bo Jackson y and his physical ability to run you over, but he had no maneuverability whatsoever. And I remember some of the cowboys saying like they once watched Herschel Walker try dribbling a basketball and it was painful. Like he wasn't the athlete you would think he was. So I think, I think he was great, but limited, you know, like I don't think today in modern times with all the testing of players, he'd be considered quite what he was back then because it would give you a lot of tests that he would do miserably on. And they'd be like, wait, this guy, yeah, he's really powerful. But I don't know if he can, I don't know if he can juke anybody. Right. Um, That's what they said about him. He had no wiggle. No wiggle. So you know, I actually think the guy in the USFL who's the better running back was Calvin Bryant, um, who who went on to Washington after really dominating the USFL, and he got hurt pretty quickly, and his body was battered. Uh, but that guy was a was a really unique and special player. Yeah, safe to say he was the MVP cumulatively of the USFL. Uh, the championships that the Sam Stars Mills. won. Him and Sam Mills, the linebacker, were the two sort of best players in the USFL, I think. Well, that, that gets to the other question, too. It's like, how, how good was Reggie White in the NF, in the USFL? Uh, he was, I mean, superb. thing is, he was really raw. He came out of Tennessee. He was known, but he wasn't, like, super, super known. Right. And, um, yeah, he was just physically, you know, do, he was a physically dominant uh, player. I mean, uh, there's one game I love when he said, um, you got uh, some cup lock him. Uh, opposing team center, cut block him. And on the next play, he told, uh, he told, uh, he was on the Memphis Showboats. He told the Showboats nose tackle, we're going to switch positions on this play. And he lines up across from the center with just cut block him. And he says, uh, right before the snap, he goes, Hey, do you know Jesus? And the center goes, What? And he goes, Hi, cute. And he just slams him into the ground. And he goes, You know Jesus now? And oh, just walks away. You <laughs> know Jesus now. That'll be the name of this week's podcast. Oh, that's so good. Um, so I, I feel almost contractually obligated to ask you this next question. Um, and I'm sure it's the one you've gotten ad nauseum, but it's also, it's a very evocative question. I mean, what does the demise of the USFL tell us about Donald Trump? 
Oh man, to me, it's a blueprint. Like it really, it's really fascinating. Um, I was working on this book during the election, and there's one that there was one thing I just kept coming back to, and I kept saying to my wife, "This is just insane." Is um, you know, heading into the 1985 season, which would end up being the last season, Donald Trump and the New Jersey Generals signed Doug Flutie, the Heisman Trophy winner out of Boston College. There are a couple of things to that. Number one, they didn't need him. Their quarterback was Brian Syke, who'd been the NFL MVP with the Cleveland Browns. He was a far superior player. But Trump liked the hype and the headlines of getting Flutie. Um, he signed him to the biggest contract in pro football history at the time. I think it was six years, $8.3 million, which at the time was a huge amount of money. And um, he told his partners of the generals, don't worry, we're going to sign him, but the, but the other owners are going to pay most of his contract. And he actually wrote a letter to the commissioner of the league, Harry Usher, uh, that I got a copy of. And it said, um, my signing Doug Flutie has done wonders to this league. No one can argue against the impact it's had on attendance and blah, 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 blah. And I expect all the other owners to contribute to paying his salary. And this is right around the same time he was saying Mexico is going to pay for the wall. Wow. And I kept thinking, holy crap. And it's crazy. Like, and all the other owners basically gave a collective fuck you. We're not paying for this thing. I mean, there's no way we're paying for this thing. It was just the same tactics. I mean, when people say like, when people are saying he would never collude with Russia, he would never do any of that. Um, he had a meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, while he was known in the US of L and um, basically said to Rozelle, I don't, I don't care about this league. I want an NFL franchise. You tell me what I have to do to get into the NFL. So people were like, he would never collude. Well, he did collude. You know, he, he literally went to the NFL commissioner and said, I'll throw this thing under the bus if you get me a team. There's like a million examples, one after another after another. And you say, yeah, I see, I see his tactics 30 years ago in this football league. And then there's the whole issue of uh, recently revealed of him going to Deutsche Bank and trying to get them to inflate his net worth so he could buy the Buffalo Bills. Well, and yeah. That's it's a common funny. thread, too. Oh, yeah. If you, it's funny because... Um, he didn't even make a serious offer on the Bills. That was a crazy thing. I mean, and and then the, I forgot the guy's name, but the owner of the Bills holds a press conference, you know, to announce he's bought, he's got the team, and he's really excited. And Trump is like, you can go back and see this. Trump live tweets the press conference and just sits there bashing the guy left and right. I mean, it's just it's just a, a recurring, you know, it's just a recurring thing. Yikes! And and then. The demise of the USFL. Can you just, for my listeners who don't know, like, can you speak about how Donald Trump really, I mean, holds responsibility for that? And then also, if you think the USFL, what what its survival prospects would have been if Trump hadn't intervened? Well, it's almost like um, it's almost like he's responsible. It's almost like how he won the presidency, and yet really the voters are responsible. You know, like. He, he is responsible for the USFL dying, but the other owners fell for the con and, and went along with it. So it's, it's not entirely on him. I mean, basically, he wanted the only reason he got in the USFL is because he wanted an NFL franchise. That was the plan from day one. And he bought the New Jersey Generals, and in the lead-up, he was very positive about the USFL. And as soon as he got in the league, he began forcing the issue. We need to move to the fall. We need to take the NFL directly. That's it. The, you know. If God wanted football in the spring, he wouldn't have invented baseball. That was a stupid line. And, and over and over again, he was pounding this theme. And he started lying about uh, negotiations he was having with TV executives who were really excited about the U.S. of L in the fall. Of course, none of them were. He hired Roy Cohn, the infamous uh, attorney from the McCarthy uh, he uh, hearings. That was a disaster. 
Uh, he let a lot, you know, they ended up suing the NFL. Trump guaranteed they would win. He said we should have the, we should sue in, in New York. I know the system here. We're going to win. He, you know, convince the other owners it was the only way to go. They were starting to get panicky because they were losing money, even though it's part of owning a new, you know, sports franchise. And they ended up suing the NFL, and they they won the case, and they won a uh, they won a dollar, tripled to three. So they ended up winning three dollars, and that was the death of the USFL. And it was all because he won an NFL team. And the worst part of it all, truly to me, is you know all these players who are living their dreams. Like this was a dream for them, and all these guys who are living their dreams, and uh, this great idea. And as soon as it ended, Trump just kind of walked away. And there's that quote from the from the Mike Tolan thirty for thirty where he just called it small potatoes. And for so many of those guys, I mean, it was, a, it was a truly a recurring theme when I interviewed all these guys. That small potatoes line really freaking rubbed them wrongly. Um, as for the league's survival, I think if it had hung around, 1987 was the NFL player strike, um, where they ended up using replacement players. I just think if the U.S. had stuck around to then uh, and started drawing guys from the NFL, it would have been really interesting. I think the NFL would have gotten really panicked. Uh, you know, they didn't have a team in Jacksonville yet. The USFL did. They didn't have a team in Baltimore. The USFL did. The USFL was doing really well in, in Birmingham. Had a team in Tennessee before the NFL did. I think it would have had a lot of these teams sort of absorbed into the NFL, probably four or five franchises. Wow. Now, you've. I'm, I'm really curious about, I mean, I enjoyed this book so much. I've enjoyed all your books. Uh, but I, I have to ask you, you know, you've written some pretty massive bestsellers how is the book doing? And I'm, I'm asking more because I'm curious about the the audience for the USFL and USFL nostalgia. Yeah, it actually sold really well, but I, I don't think um, you know made the list, and it, you know it's kind of your goal. And, and uh, I don't think it's going to be like it's not going to be one of those books that sells like a zillion copies. And it's kind of funny, like when I was promoting it, when I was really big in promoting it. Uh, I get the question, like, why do you think people are so nostalgic for the USFL? And I actually don't. I think you have to. I don't think they are. I think yeah. you and I are exceptions. I, know, I, I think you have say, to. You know, I've been, I've yeah, been like, I've I, been like going around like, like an apostle for the book, and people are like, "Wait, what's the USFL?" Exactly. And I, and so, so to me, it was more like I just had to like use everything I've learned about promoting a book. It's almost like you have to convince people why the USFL is worth reading about. Um, it's kind of funny when people are like, why are, so why Jeff, why do you think people are so nostalgic about the USML? And when I go, yeah, I don't really think they are like, that's not really expected answer. You know, people mm-hmm. want you to say, Oh no, they really love it. <laughs> but, um, they love the Boston breakers. Yeah. Everyone loves the Boston breakers. I mean, there's like, it's like me, you, Bill Simmons and like five other people, <laughs> but the stories are so good. And the, and the, the league was so rich with characters. I think you just sell the, the sort of joy of the experience. And does the USFL tell us anything about the possibilities for football outside of the NFL matrix? You've got these upstart leagues, the AAF, XFL coming forward. Are there any lessons for these leagues to, to draw from the USFL experience? I, mean, I think the positive ones are, are the, the ones you can take from it. Um, I think spring football works. Uh, I think if you have regional drafts, I mean, the USFL is very big into lining up local college stars with their teams. So the Tampa Bay Bandits are drawing a lot of guys from Florida State, Florida, Bethune-Cookman. Um, you know, the idea that like, oh, we saw this kid in high school and now we're going to see him in college, now we're going to see him pro football works. Um, I think the big thing that doesn't work is taking the NFL on directly. You can't start a league and just say, we're going to battle the NFL and we're going to start stealing their players because they're such a huge head start and they're such a monolith now. Um, 
So it's, you know, I don't think either of these new leagues, it doesn't seem that great for the Alliance right now. Like the news is not very promising. It's just really, really hard. Um, and the other thing is the USFL, if you remember, like when the USFL came along, the NFL was not year-round news. People mm-hmm. were paying attention. Once the season ended, the season ended. Now it never ends. So you're not just, you're not just even if you're playing in spring, you're fighting the draft, you're fighting the combine, you're fighting free agency. This is a really big, and your and your counter argument is well, we have Trent Richardson and you know Johnny Manziel. That's a tough. That's a tough battle to win. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So just uh, to wrap this up, and I really do appreciate your time. Um, I got to ask you if I mean you, the book's out. I don't think it, it's not even in paperback yet, right? And no, not yet. So the question becomes: Are you already thinking about the next book, or are you still uh, marinating with this one? I'm working on it. I have a next book due in July. It's, uh, I'm doing a book on the, uh, yeah, I'm doing a book on the uh, Shaq Kobe era, the Seattle Shaq Kobe era Lakers. Ooh, really? Yeah. You, you, there you, go. you yeah. getting that's as an, as an old slam guy, you would appreciate that. Hell yeah! Oh my god, are, are you are you getting people opening up about it? You getting some good interviews? Yeah, it's been. I didn't get Kobe, but I got Shaq. I got Phil. You know, about three hundred interviews in. Yeah, it's good. It's been Damn, fun. Like three hundred interviews in. I cannot wait for that. Do you have a title? Yeah. Uh no, I do not have a title yet. No more. If you have any ideas, I'll take them. Okay, I'll, we'll we'll put them out to the audience. We'll get uh, some yeah. some group thinking on this one. And then the last thing yeah. I wanted to ask you: for someone who does as much writing as you do, music has to play some sort of part in it in terms of what you listen to when you write. Uh, do you mm-hmm. have something that you listen to to get yourself in the in the headspace to do this kind of work? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. Um, I always play. I can't listen to music on headphones when I'm writing because it's just it's it's mm-hmm. too much. But I always play if I'm writing from home. I'm usually playing you know some combination of music I've I've been listening to for years as far as. Uh, Usually kind of, kind of a mix of a tribe called Quest. Street poetry is my everyday. But yo, I gotta stop when you drop my way. If I was working at the club, you would not pay. Hey yo, my man Fife Diggy, he got something to say. I like him brown, yellow, Puerto Rican, a Haitian. Mm. Name is Fife Diggy, Zulu Nation. Uh, a lot of Tupac. My dream book is a Tupac biography. So that's, mm. uh, Tupac just carried me for years as a writer. Um, yeah, that's my general. Or sometimes even classical music. I listen... The soundtrack from the mission sounds corny, but different Damn. things like that. Soundtrack from the mission. You're, you're deep in the 80s when you're yeah, going there. Okay. <laughs> well, hey, Jeff Perlman, I really do appreciate the time on this Sunday morning. Thanks so much for talking to us. Oh, yeah, thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Awesome. The book is Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. We'll be back right after this. You could be my mama and I'll be your boy. Original road boy, never am I coy. You could be a shorty in my ill convoy. Not to come across as a thug or a hood. But hun, you got the goods like Madeline Wood. By the way, my name's Malik. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. 
And now I've got some choice words about Donald Trump's effort to cut the Special Olympics. I know that he has since backtracked on this, along with his education secretary, the execrable Betsy DeVos. But it's still worth pointing out why they went after the Special Olympics in the first place. Okay, look, as been often said of this administration, sometimes the cruelty is the point. It was announced last week that Betsy DeVos wants to eliminate the $18 million budget allocation for the Special Olympics, part of their $7 billion in proposed spending cuts to the education system of this country. When questioned about this barbaric decision, DeVos told a House subcommittee, we had to make some difficult decisions. At this hearing, with her trademark ignorance, and that is her brand, DeVos couldn't provide the number of children who would be affected by the cutting of the Special Olympics. That number is 272,000. In addition, more than 5 million children worldwide are involved with Special Olympic programs, and they would all be affected by this decision. It is impossible to look at this heartless decision as disconnected from Trump's ableism. He has notoriously mocked those with disabilities. He uses the word retarded as a slur. And it's been argued compellingly and presciently by Amani Barbarin that, quote, ableism is the go-to disguise for white supremacy. You should read this article. Barbarin writes, Agents of white supremacy count on society's existing behaviors towards the mentally ill and by extension all disabled people to aid and abet their agenda without anyone taking a closer look. And it's more than just Trump's infamous mocking of the disabled. From reporter Serge Kovalevsky to John McCain's inability to lift his arms, between his attacks on the Affordable Care Act and his claims that white supremacist mass shooters are, quote, mentally ill, end quote, instead of motivated by the very philosophy that animates this administration, his worldview is comparable to that of historical white nationalists. See this New York Times op-ed from September 2017, the Nazis' first victims were the disabled. Now, Betsy DeVos, whose brother is Blackwater militia founder and alt-right hero Eric Prince, and whose husband's family are the billionaire Christian dominionists who bankroll the think tanks of the far right, is merely doing her part in what is a far broader assault. $18 million is nothing to the federal government. It's just six golf trips to Mar-a-Lago for Trump. The cut was demanded because, again, cruelty is the point. And while the Special Olympics is on the chopping block, the DeVos budget grants $60 million for charter schools as part of her family's go-to hobby of the last 30 years, which is to destroy public education in this country. Now, people took to Twitter to express opposition to this callous cut. Two-time world champion, U.S. soccer legend, and ESPN personality Julie Foudy tweeted, God, you only need to spend .01 minutes watching these Special Olympic athletes perform to understand the power of this program. Similarly, Rachel Nichols, also of ESPN, tweeted, The Special Olympics are aptly named, truly one of the most special things we get to cover at ESPN. But what is needed now are not pleas, but bracing truth. To quote Frederick Douglass, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. That was provided ever so sharply by a 500-pound professional wrestler who goes by the name of The Big Show and works with the Special Olympics. This is what he said in a righteously angry online rant. 
The message she's sending is that people with special needs aren't important enough to be part of society. As for DeVos, she actually felt the backlash to this horrific decision and put out a statement to, quote, set the record straight. And it could go down in history as the worst set the record straight proclamation in history. This is what she said. The Special Olympics is not a federal program. It's a private organization. I love its work and I have personally supported its mission. Because of its important work, it is able to raise more than $100 million every year. Given our current budget realities, the federal government cannot fund every worthy program, particularly ones that enjoy robust support from private donations. That's DeVos setting the record straight, saying the media has been lying and the real agenda is to cut the Special Olympics. This isn't just run-of-the-mill, ordinary Trump land evil. This is crude, cartoonish evil by a cartoonishly evil public figure from a cartoonishly evil family. This is about something far bigger than the Special Olympics. It's about how those in the White House view the most vulnerable in our society. The cruelty is the point. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award and the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award go to the same person this week. UConn's legendary basketball coach, Gino Oriema. Just stand up for Gino Oriema. Good for you, man, for saying that college athletes should be paid. It was a great thing to hear, particularly because oftentimes you hear people on the side of women's sports repeat the untruth that if you start paying revenue-producing athletes, what's going to hurt is women's sports. That's not true. It's something that is oftentimes used, but is not the case. So to have the most prominent coach in women's sports say, no, wait a minute, they are producing revenue above and beyond what we need to actually run NCAA programs, and they should get a piece of that revenue, which is the truth. It's a big deal to have that come from the mouth of Gino. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award from Gino Oriema actually starts with some brilliant reporting by someone who's been a guest on this show before, Lindsay Gibbs from Think Progress. And people should read the article she wrote where she went to Notre Dame, that's South Bend, Indiana, and spent time with Muffet McGraw, the great coach from uh, the Notre Dame basketball program down there. And one of the things that Muffet McGraw talked to Lindsay Gibbs about was about why she was only going to hire uh, women assistant coaches going forward because the number of women's head coaches in NCAA basketball has dwindled dramatically over the decades. It was once over 90%. Now it's somewhere between 40 and 50%. So she is attempting to create um, a group, a bullpen 
of women who are prepared to coach at the NCAA level. Good for Muffet McGraw. Now, Lindsay Gibbs wrote this article. It has definitely gone viral in the world of women's athletics. And Gino Oriema up in Albany, New York, where they're playing the NCAA tournament, was asked about what Muffet McGraw said. I mean, Gino Oriema, to be clear, has a longtime rivalry with Muffet McGraw. I mean, these, this is kind of like an oil and water situation here. Montagues and Capulets, if you will. Uh, but this is what Gino Oriema said. He said, I think very peevishly, Well, I hope she sends a thank you to all those guys that used to be on her staff that got her all those good players and won a championship. I don't know. I didn't read the story. I don't believe that. I don't know anything about it. But I look at some of the top programs in America, and they seem to have pretty good coaches who happen to be men. So, there you go. Huzzah, huzzah from Gino Oriema. Kind of crapping all over what Muffet McGraw was saying and not addressing at all the politics of what she was trying to raise. So, Gino Oriema, please, sit your ass down. Damn, I got Gino Oriema playing musical chairs this week. Stand up, sit your ass down. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, about the latest comings and goings with Colin Kaepernick. Uh, This references the Kaepernick Watch from a week ago, but they just did a Know Your Rights campaign in Baltimore, Maryland. And there's been just some great stuff on Twitter about that. Kaepernick has done a lot of tweeting about the work they did with the children of Baltimore. And I really can't think of a better place for them to have done that kind of work. So the Kaepernick Watch this week is an encouragement of everybody to go to the Colin Kaepernick Twitter feed, check it out, and see some of the great works that the Know Your Right campaign does. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. I want to encourage folks to please go visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Uh, We really need the support to keep doing the podcast. Thank you so much to everybody out there uh, who listens to the show. Please, wherever you get the podcast from, your podcast app of choice, leave a little message, uh, write a review. All that stuff helps us in a major way. For everybody out there listening, stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.